Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotuk, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and Gaina First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them. Hello and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architect's House for Creative Writing podcast series. Today we present an interview of Lydia Kwa with Ryan Stern. My name is Mark Herman Lynch and I am a research assistant for the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. In this interview, Lydia Kwa discusses the Chinese concept of chuanqi, or strange tales, and how her investigation into important women in Chinese history impacted the writing of her books, Oracle Bone and The Walking Boy. This interview touches on the ways Kwa blends historical record with her own imaginative realizations, bringing to life Empress Wu Zhao and diverse historical places like Chang'an to speak to contemporary issues of sexuality and diversity. This interview touches on everything from folklore to the etymology of Chinese words to psychology and metacommunication, as well as Kwa's own relationship to her books and characters. Interviewer Ryan Stern is a PhD student, creative writer, and a research assistant for the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. Lydia Kwa was born in Singapore, but moved to Toronto to begin studies in psychology at the University of Toronto in 1980. Kwa has published two books of poetry, The Colors of Heroines and Sinuous, and four novels, This Place Called Absence, The Walking Boy, Pulse, and Oracle Bone. Her next novel, A Dream Wants Waking, will be published by Buckrider Books, an imprint of Woolsack and Wynne in fall 2023. A third book of poetry, From Time to New, will be published by Gordon Hill Press in fall 2024. She won the Earl Burney Poetry Prize in 2018, and her novels have been nominated for several awards, including the Lambda Literary Award for Fiction. Kwa lives and works on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples in a city known by its colonial name, Vancouver. This is a wonderful interview, and I'm excited for what you're about to enjoy. Thank you so much for listening. Lydia, welcome. Thank you very much for welcoming me, Ryan. Um, I, I guess in these times, I'd be remiss if I just didn't start by asking, how are you? I'm okay. I'm surviving. You know, I'm grateful to have shelter and have a home and I'm okay. Thank you. Those are all great things in these trying times. So t- today I'd really like to focus on Oracle Bone and the Walking Boy. So I had to list The Walking Boy twice in your introduction because it exists as both a standalone novel originally published in 2005 and was reworked and republished in 2019 as the second book in your Chuangji trilogy. Before we get to why and how you reworked The Walking Boy, I would love to hear your definition of Chuangji, meaning to transmit the strange. 
So this is an old term that I, I picked out of a book, actually, and I have this book here to show you. I found it in the, live, uh, in the bookstore in the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Uh, it's called Love and Women in Early Chinese Fiction by Daniel Xie. And um, I had known about these kinds of literature and how they showed up in popular Chinese films, Chuanqi, meaning to transmit the strange. And I was really intrigued by this book, and it, it's a scholarly book, and it lists a lot of old folk tales, the oral tradition behind ghosts, demons, and also fox spirits. So then I became interested in fox spirits because already primed by Larissa Lai's book, When Fox is a Thousand. Uh, so I started thinking about writing a prequel to The Walking Boy. So by that time, The Walking Boy was already written as a way to kind of create a form that paid respect to ch classical Chinese literature and yet do something a little different. So it has uh, demons and exorcism. And this was also recorded in history annals that the uh, Wu Zetian, Empress Wu Zhao was haunted by demons of the former concubines that she tortured and had killed. So anyway, uh, so then I became interested in the notion of writing a prequel much later on after writing The Walking Boy as a standalone novel. And I thought of the idea of having a trilogy, but now as it stands currently to date, it is now uh, that Oracle Bone is the first book of a duology and The Walking Boy is the second book. I do have a new book coming out and it is a companion novel to the two, but it's a standalone novel. And it will be published by Buck Rider Books, an imprint of Wolsack and Wynn in the fall of 2023. And it's doing something with some of the characters that have already been present in the two books, but it's taking it into a completely different place altogether. So we can talk about that as we continue in this interview. Yeah, I'd love to. And that's, uh, I'm very happy that I'm going to be able to see these returning characters. But uh, it, duology I, was a bit shocking because I, I really felt enamored with these characters. So now defining as a duology, do you see the form as a type of magical realism? You, you mentioned in the preface to The Walking Boy that your interest in the, in the duology is literary subversion. If you could, I'd really like you to unpack that a bit further. Does that mean in content, form, both? Who are you subverting and why? Well, it was mostly this book that I picked up and read that got me quite angry about how fox spirits were depicted because the tradition uh, was mostly, I think almost exclusively at least recorded, but done by scholars, male scholars. And they wrote stories about mostly female fox spirits who were mostly bad. So that's sense of how the literature was kind of reflecting a patriarchal kind of misogyny or, you know, locating the evil in females, in female spirit. And I wanted to subvert that. I wanted to write a character like Chilan, who is good, who is very fine, in fact, uh, very noble. Uh, and I wanted to write her as a half human, half fox spirit, a sort of straddling both worlds. So that uh, in terms of content uh, was the subversion. Mostly it's that. I, I mean, I'm not, I can't claim, you know, a lot of history myself in terms of living in China and growing up with generations of knowledge, but I am 
a diasporic Chinese who grew up in Singapore and now living here, Canada. But I've always had interest in these tropes, uh, mostly through popular culture, mostly through films. Some of the stories of the strange came through Hong Kong cinema of fox spirits and demons. And then that's how I kind of re-entered or entered uh, the literary tradition that way. So it's, it's interesting to, to know that and to intersect it. And, and of course, Oracle Bone, I think it, to me, in my mind, I wrote it as kind of a wuxia novel. So wuxia meaning martial arts. And there is, you know, there are tropes of horrible tragedy, trauma, and then the heroine Ling becoming strong, being trained, seeking revenge on the villain who killed her father and the mother had mother raped her mother and then who killed herself subsequently. So, so there's a trope of this kind of a hero, heroine person, heroine person going back to the villain and defeating the villain. But there, there is where there's a fork in the road here where Ling decides to not kill Shan Hu, decides on a different form of punishment. So that's, that's the, there's a subversion there in terms of not just slaying out of rage or justifiable rage or anger which is often very noticeable in a lot of wuxia films is just, I have a noble cause and I'm just going to kill whomever has wronged me. So that's, that's kind of what I wanted to do with the subversion, but also, you know, having females be kind of the, the foregrounded main protagonist. In Oracle Bone, it's Qilan and Ling, and in The Walking Boy, it's Ling mostly. And Qilan in a, in a reincarnation in the far future will be the main protagonist in the next book. So don't worry, she's going to show up, <laughs> but very differently. But there's, there are threads. So there are, there are threads. It's not like I cut the whole thing off. There are echoes very definitely uh, of the two books in the third book. Well, I'm great to hear she's back because she's a fantastic character. I, I just want to return to what you were saying about trying to respond to the text that you found in specifically, in, I can very clearly see the way you've done it with Chilong and the subversion of the Fox character. I mean, there's even a moment in Oracle Bone where Chilong almost explicitly says, not all Fox spirits are evil. So it was yeah. made very clear. Yeah. Um, but as well, um, I, I, I find it really interesting that you're saying this because in The Walking Boy, the character of Wan Er is engaged in secretly writing a poetic response to the poet Kai Yan. Um, so was this reflective of your own engagement with helping to respond to history and rewrite it? Or not necessarily rewrite it, but rework it? Oh, yes. Those poems were written by me. So <laughs> Shangguan Wana's responses are actually my poems. Uh, and of course, I'm writing in English, right? So I'm not even translating uh, Wana's replies. I'm, I'm writing them. So I'm creating fiction. I'm creating poetry in response to translations of Chayan's poems. So there's a lot of this deconstructing and, you know, honoring and yet subverting, doing something different with the tradition. So yeah, there's, there's a little bit of that subverting there as well, you're right. I, I didn't want to read too much and impose the character of Wanner on you, but it seemed to me that was what was happening. So thank you for the confirmation. I found it, yeah, I, I found it so fascinating that I, I response in the text was also mirroring your response. And there are a lot of layers of deconstruction. Mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, so the duology plus the third companion piece. So it's situated in Chang'ong during the Tang Dynasty's rule of China. So it reminds me of your character Xilong recounting a story to Ling in Oracle Bo. I'll, I'll quote you here. Quote, the emperor forbade his subjects from owning the Book of Songs and the classic history, banning these books and many more. Language was powerful, hence dangerous, end quote. I'm just curious, how did you go about negotiating your own power in writing a story that's based on actual history? Oh, I don't know. I just, I mean, I just decided to have a voice, right? I mean, it's, it's easy to say, but is trying to have a response and the response is you know multi-layered a response to history a response by creating a response of my imagination by interacting with the history that's just me finding my voice creating the characters so that's it's a it's a very organic process for me i didn't sit down and say you know i'm just going to do it this way but i just kind of felt it from my gut maybe and you know it felt inspired to meet that history with my own spirit, my own imagination. It's really just as simple as deciding to have a voice. Um, did, was there any kind of a, a sense of responsibility toward the history when you were encountering the more true historical moments as opposed to the fictionalization of characters living within those moments? Well, for example, what comes to mind would be the, the torture scene the, with the two concubines with then, well, that's the emperor female emperor recalling her earlier days when she was struggling for power. And she had those two women tortured. That's history. That's really true. The whole scene with uh, the scene with the vats and, you know, putting them into the vats, that's also recorded in Chinese history, albeit I read it in the Cambridge translation of those historical events. It, it, this happened. So I wanted to be true to that historical fact. I had a friend ask me, you know, when she read the scene where a female emperor is writing in her diary, right? She's recording my, my worst enemies, uh, what she did. What I tried to do there that's really different is to flesh out what I could imagine would be the psychological distortion in a person that justified, that could justify such violence. Since I'm interested in psychology and in psychology of humans, I, I wanted to explore how a person could be so uh, driven by delusion and denial to do such a thing. So driven by rage, uh, driven by righteous anger. This is a very dangerous thing, uh, not just for the female emperor, but for any one of us. We could, do, we could do acts of violence because we justify it, that the target of our violence deserves our rage. So it's a very, um, I think, very real and very pressing, very palpable thing that plagues humankind in general. And so it's a, it's a brutal scene, but you know, my friends say, well, why would you want to write that? I, I was quite surprised by that question as if there's something wrong in writing something so violent. But my moral position is that it is wrong. So I wanted to show and explore the possibilities of how a person could do such acts of violence. So I have a particular moral position, which is it's wrong. I'm still going to write about it because I, I want to write about how a person can get there. So that's relying on history, but taking it somewhere very, I guess, contemporary, I suppose, much more. Uh, certainly those aspects are there in all forms of literature, in all cultures, but just wanted to really up the volume on the psychology of it 
Absolutely you did, uh, it, it, because you've got the dual psychological impact of that, of having the female emperor, she's almost speaking about it with remorse, because as she's dictating to one her, she is also realizing the heinous of it, heinousness of that act, uh, yeah. as well as she, doesn't she uh, devolve into tears by the end of it? She, she was writing in her own diary, she had a secret diary, this, this, this was not Oh yeah, sorry. This was her dictating to Warner. Um, her those tears were meant as an expression of her own um, sense of her own being wronged. <laughs> so she was she felt so wrong. She did not have any empathy for her enemies. She felt so so wronged and so bitter that they would wrong her. She was crying for herself, and that's really rather chilling, don't you think? It was, it's very chilling, especially in the fact that she wronged these two women and is feeling uh, sympathy for herself in this moment of recounting it. And she's also yeah. inflicting another level of trauma on Wanner, who yeah, now yeah. has to grapple with having to digest and transcribe that story. Yes, she has, she has no um, sense of any impact of her own actions on you know, that would hurt other people. Yeah, that's why, sorry, I thought, I forgot that it was her dictation to Warner because she also had a, her own secret diary, but this was a dictation. Yeah, you know, um, Warner in history herself was taken as a slave of the court and also uh, was given a tattoo on her forehead, right? That tattoo is, you know, something I made up. In history, it's said that Warner was, you know, branded or tattooed, but we don't know what the, the symbol was, what it was, if there was anything, but I made that up. So, and again, you know, she, she had, oh yeah, so the female emperor wrote in her, her own diary why she, how she came to choose that symbol. Again, there's that person who is very solipsistic, who tends to justify her own actions as if they are totally well-intended. It was for her good. You know, I want her to transform. I mean, it's crazy, but that's the power of the human mind that this happens. This happens not only for that character, but for any one of us, we stand at risk of justifying such things and saying, well, you know, this, this is all meant for the other person's good. Chilling, very chilling. Yeah, it was very chilling. She was, she was a chilling character between both. And I, I particularly love the explanation of how you arrived or how the emperor, the female emperor, arrived at that symbol. And it was, in the end, it was too... Uh, two forms facing away from one another, inverted. Just such a gorgeous level of symbolism. Notice that even in the construction of that character, you're relying on other characters. So how important was for you to include other dialects characters throughout your books? Other dialects characters? So that, that character was the, the first known recorded character of the word for transformation, Hua. And it, it consists of two humans. And with one human, you know, with the with like this kind of a symbol, two legs, uh, one top inverted, and the bottom was like this. So one was like this, and the other one was like that. So top, head to toe, toes to head. And so that idea of having two different humans being able to view things in a different, two different ways from two different perspectives. So that was really important to make that create that, that whole notion, but the, the actual character was based on a bone carving, how they had the first script that was first written was not really written yet, was carved into bone. 
and that symbol was found on bone. And then later on, it evolved into the current symbol for transformation, which is also the word that we use as part of the description of chemistry, which is to study transformation. So there's this whole um, uh, resonance there of, uh, with alchemy, transformation, where, you know, in The Walking Boy, there's a lot of these, you know, uh, wild, crazy elixirs happening. And so that's the alchemy part. But it's a very kind of cheapened way of dealing with alchemy, right? I mean, the irony of that alchemy was that they suspect that all those potions that female emperor was having uh, had quite a bit of um, mercury, as she describes how, you know, it's beautiful. And those, those, there were those ideas that if you took what was seen in nature and you imbibed that, you too would take on that quality. But of course, they forgot that what was out there interacts with what is in here, right? It, it's a very separatist kind of idea that this in itself is a very essentialist idea. Uh, you know, this is the thing, I take it, and it remains the same. Essentialism is very prevalent in the way we think. I am me and you are you over there and we have no connection or we don't really interact. And so, it, you know, it's like separation. But that's why I think in a way, Ni Huang made that mistake, but then it wasn't just her mistake. It was a belief then that if you took that substance into you, uh, you literally have the quality of that substance. So mercury, quicksilver, uh, that would become, now you would be bright, shiny, and quick and powerful. Like you could just, you know, just move around and you could be very fluid, right? But it was poisoning her. That's what she died of in the end. It, it was mercury poison. That, that is what I suspected because once again, leaning on history, that was a very common practice at that era in China. And I'm, I'm really glad that you explained that essentialism and trying to imbibe yourself with the qualities of the natural world. Yeah, I, I found it so fascinating the way that these books took those little pieces of history and how do I say this? Use them in the novels to get more so even at the psychology of these individuals. Yeah. Thank you. So, so your representation of this period of Chen Ong's history focuses greatly on its role as a cosmopolitan and international city. There's a lot of attention paid to its multicultural nature. Uh, so why was this representation so important to you? Well, Chang'an, the name Chang'an actually means long peace. And I found it fascinating that, that accounts record that to be probably the largest city in the world at the time. And there was a sense of openness, uh, albeit there, were, there was guarding of the borders and you know the fighting of Turks and other attempted invasions. But there is that whole sense of active cultural exchange and influence. There was a sense of learning, sharing, and there was a wide variety of different religions being allowed. So there was a sense of openness to inviting different kinds of peoples there for trade, for liveliness, for art, for learning. So I, I thought that was a great kind of reality. So I wanted to allow that. And, and it was a nice framing as well, a nice larger context for my exploration of diversity in peoples there, you know, like Adonari's friends, the Jogapas, or the Yogapas, who are actually trans females. And so they occupy this niche as outsiders, even within the Western sector of the city. So I've just, I developed this area called foreign quarter. 
So um, there, there probably were foreign quarters, but I don't think they were called. I don't know whether they're called foreign quarters or not. I don't know, you know, in Oracle Bones, there are such a place as the Vice Hamlet. I, I made these things up. So again, it's an idea of a city, but superimposing my own imagination over it, overlaying it with my own ideas. Yeah, there, there was a lot of diversity in these books. As you mentioned, the Yogapas, who were trans female. Uh, there was also the titular walking boy, uh, who was intersex. So there was an incredible amount of diversity of genders, sexuality, sex, and it just, it read through really well. So I, I really greatly enjoyed those aspects of it because it had a, a sense of polyvocality. And I almost noticed that the Yogapas had one of the strongest communities within it, even though they were outsiders and they were relegated to foreign quarters, they were still incredibly tightly knit and almost some of the happiest characters. Was that an intention of your process to make sure that they were seen as very happy, well-rounded, well-situated, content? Well, yes. You know, uh, they're outsided, but to foreground them as happy is a subversive thing to do. <laughs> you know, to make them happy despite all the things that have happened to them, how much they are avoided. And yet they are foregrounded in all the happiness and celebratory nature and, you know, having um, men come to the tea shop to watch them sing and dance. I mean, why not? Woohoo, that's great. You know, sort of create an alternate universe for them, a sort of a, a centering of queer joy. So to me, that's my little quiet way of being radical, you know, shift the focus. Yeah, absolutely. It, it definitely read through. I just, all of those scenes made me so happy and the way they were so accepting of uh, Baoshir as well, the walking boy in their community. It was, it, those are some of the moments in the text that I was really looking forward to more exploration of. And I, I found it really gratifying to see that happiness. Mm, mm, that's great. And, and speaking to uh, the, the multiculturalism, uh, one of the unintended effects that these novels had on me personally as a reader, it, I, I found this a multicultural aspect, was your descriptions of food made me really quite hungry while I was reading it. And so, oh, I'm glad. I can't hear that. <laughs> it, it also seemed to have this quality where meeting around these foods sort of leveled. There's almost a class leveling when Wang Er received food from the female emperor and was able to eat as well. The tea shop where the Yogapas are that we were just mentioning. There's a lot of different multicultural foods ingested there. So how did you come about these descriptions of food? Uh, what, what does writing food mean to you? Well, I love food. And sadly, nowadays, I have uh, some kind of developed some kind of uh, food sensitivities, but I can imagine them in my mind because I love food and I happen to have this very nice capability. And so whatever I can't eat, I can, if I've eaten it before, I can uh, think of it and I literally read it, I eat it in my brain. I mean, in my experience, I can call it up. So I discovered this ability a few years ago and I went, wow, that's really something. So I guess it makes it easier when I, when I write scenes where there's food um, and I, I'm very much want to include food because it's such a central reality for all of us, right? So, um, but there's also a different, different qualities of eating or sharing food in the works. You know, for example, uh, Ni Huang giving a bun to Wanner is not the same as the yoga bars eating together. There's a power 
imbalance there between the emperor, female emperor, and her subject. So, but food is very meaningful in terms of a kind of uh, it's imbued with a kind of power, right? Power of nurturance, uh, power to give nurturance, power to allow nurturance, or power to share communally. So, and because I I I love to cook uh, and I have a long history of liking food, I'm not one of those people who hate to cook. I like to cook. So, to me, I find cooking. Relaxing. There were days. There were years when I. There were times when I cooked for large numbers of people. So, though not formally trained, uh, this is very much very salient to me. Our, our own association with food and also making food, giving food as a form of care. Uh, so that's my association with food and cooking. So of course I wanted to include it in these novels. And in the novel to come, there will be quite a bit of food. <laughs> don't don't worry. There's food in there, right? That will make you hopefully hungry. Oh, yeah, absolutely they will. I, I'm just thinking about the dole mods in my mind right now or the lotus root buns. And yeah, it's definitely making me hungry. Yeah, I, I also saw that there was an aspect of food's ability to bridge cultures. Is that something that I'm imposing on the people who are visiting the foreign quarters and eating that food? Are they able to bridge that divide and come to an understanding? Well, I mean... Here we are, you know, you know, in, in the 21st century, thinking about that time, and we, we, we don't, we can't really know what it was like for them. But in the fictional worlds that I created, yeah, food is a way to connect to people. They, they don't have the ideas or the terms like multiculturalism. They, you know, don't have policies like we do. Uh, but they were just naturally aware at the visceral lift level uh, of diversity, right? So you go to the market and you buy things. So you go to the market and, you know, drink different teas or something like that. So there is a sense of a breath of experience that you, were, you, you weren't just in your little cubbyhole of culture. You were just immersed in all kinds of foods and different kinds of people around you. And it was just it, you know, it was kind of an immersive experience. I would imagine, at least in the way I approach setting up those scenes is all this variety you know just like when Bao Shu went to the market and he saw all these different people doing all kinds of different things and then and then he decided to you know perform <laughs> so and then you know want to going to the market and so it's it's all that kind of sense of just being very open you know in fact it was very interesting for me to write the character of Bao Shu because he's such an open person albeit so shamed and so traumatized for having a body that's not correct according to his father. So there's that idea of somebody who's so shamed for his actual body and uh, seen as inadequate, uh, not fully masculine. Although he uses the things of himself as he, but really it's hard to write that in, in a novel that situates itself in a Chinese, traditional Chinese culture, because I really don't know what their relationship to intersex people were. And in Chinese language, there was only way back then only one pronoun. In Chinese ta, you know, the left, there's two characters that get put together to make the pronoun ta. And ta is ta across the board. Unless it's two people or more than two and more people is ta and those people, but singular is just ta. And it's a left-hand side, the radical is just a character for person. It's the very same character that is there for Hua, for transformation, but the two 
characters inverted, but Ta, the left-hand side, is just one single person. And interestingly, I don't know, I'm not an expert, I'm not a linguist, but the right-hand side is just the word for and or also, so human and I don't know. So it's very interesting that he's the most open. So how did I get to this point? I'm just saying, I guess, just the idea of pursuing the from the perspective mostly of Bao Shi, an open kind of mind, open-hearted kind of character making a journey, uh, despite his shame, intersecting with all these differences, learning, experiencing acceptance with strangers, the yoga bus, experiencing falling in love with whom he thought was a man, as one era dressed as a man. So that confusion of gender, their presumption. It's just, a, it's a whole experiment in, I guess, in thought and pursuing ideas when I was writing it. In Bajgiri, he carried that love for Wanner when it was revealed that she was actually female. So yeah, I, I definitely read those aspects of it through and that, that acceptance and his openness was really wonderful. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, how does the Bashir of the rewrite of The Walking Boy differ from the original? Does he differ? Well, you see, The Walking Boy was published with Key Porter books and then uh, another novel was published with Key Porter right after that pulse. And then Key Porter went bankrupt. So. The Walking Boy and Pulse were out out of print. And so I decided when I was writing, when I was looking to submit the manuscript of Oracle Bound, that it would be nice if I could have a reprint, a republishing or revised edition of The Walking Boy, along with Oracle Bound, since I saw, you know, that I had written Oracle Bound as meant as a prequel to The Walking Boy. So the actual new version with Arsenal Pulp, The Walking Boy, it's more or less the same. There's nothing in terms of structure and plot that's different. What's different is, to my surprise, and you know, interestingly, I just noticed that I want, wanted to write in a slightly different style. So there were ways in which I used the language back then. I mean, I changed some of the ways I phrased things, how I, I even rewrote the poems. I'm quite rude to myself sometimes, you know, I just say, well, I'll just do, I'll just change that. You know, I'm not that precious about my work in that sense. I go, well, I think I don't feel, you know, it doesn't feel quite the way I want to say it right now. Uh, so that was an interesting process for me to, to revise The Walking Boy because it became a mirror for how much I have changed or developed or how I use language as a writer. The same text, the same book, but using the language slightly differently. But the, the plot and the, the structure, it's all the same. Do you think that change in you from the period in which you originally wrote it, looking forward, do you think it would change again inevitably? Sure, of course. I but, mean, me in terms of my, my, the way I write? or I Just, yeah, your approach to language. I, I, I suppose that's it. And I'm also curious, did you feel done with it? If you weren't given the opportunity because of the previous publisher folding, do you think you would have been done with it? Oh, yeah, I would have just, you know, been okay with it. I mean, when I release a book, of course, I don't know what the future is for the book, but I like the book. When I like the book, I say, I'm okay, I'm done with it. So, you know, of course, it was quite upsetting when Key Porter went under. So then I say, well, that was it. Sad. But then an opportunity came up to have The Walking Boy reissued 
following the oracle oracle bone. So I then I so there I was just uh, on the verge of crossing another river. And I say, hey, here I am, you know. So why not? So I'm pretty. I can be pretty fluid that way. Definitely. Yeah, just returning to the concept of rewriting again. So Bashir, he recalls a kind of mantra from his spiritual master, Harlep, and I quote you again, words are only sounds, we choose the meanings we impart to them. Meaningless until we give meaning to them or something like that, yes. Yeah, precisely. And I'm wondering, even in the process of rewriting and view it with new language, in although the plot didn't change, did some of the meanings change? Or do you perceive a change in those meanings that came out of that process? Yeah, I suppose so. But I didn't kind of, I didn't consciously reflect on that. But that's an interesting comment. Oh, yes, I did change. I did include something in the new version of The Walking Boy that was not there in the first version. Because since writing the prequel, which came second in terms of writing, right, I decided to um, have a mention in the new version of The Walking Boy where Ling recalls her relationship with Chilan. So that's new. That's new in the new version. Yeah. But it's interesting what you say about one's relationship to language and awareness. I may be an aware person, but not that way sometimes. I don't remember, <laughs> you know, thinking about what you just said. Interesting observation. Yeah, I, I found it fascinating. And I, I wonder what that kind of work would actually entail in trying to unpack it. But perhaps that's just non-exercise you're interested in. Well, well the, that phrase, uh, words are only sounds, actually is pretty central in terms of the idea anyway of, of the novel, regardless how much it has changed between the two versions, is the idea that sometimes when we use language, say just in English, we, we forget sometimes that the same word may mean different things, right? Depending on the context, depending on the speaker, depending on what their intention is, conscious, unconscious. So it's, it's a sound. And so it's a challenge to try to listen for the meaning underneath the sound. We are very attached, though, to literal meanings. Like if we lift the word off the page and say, this is the meaning, right? And you see this happen. I see this happen quite a bit anyway in the world of psychology or popular psychology or people more and more in the late 20th century, 21st century are suddenly becoming very, very savvy so to speak, about psychological ideas. We, you know, hear people dispensing advice to one other people, simply very flippant. Well, you know, all you need to do is this. Well, don't take it personally, blah, blah, blah. It's all good. And people are just vomiting all these platitudinal things. And the tone usually that I hear people say this is, it implies a sense of knowing better than you as an outsider what you should do. So the meta communication using these terms or phrases or words is just that the words themselves contain some kind of magical power that if they tell you, they know better than you. And I find this very disturbing. Very, very sort of psychology has become the handmaiden of corporate interests of neoliberalism. No big deal. It's no, it's no problem. Don't take it personally. Just, you know, suck it up, blah, blah, blah. So there's, there's a whole sense of, I, I have a whole sense of how language is being undermined while looking as if it is being the standard or the dogmatic standard is this is what it is. So it's a form of dogma. It's a form of telling you that certain language, certain words mean only one thing. And somebody else has the power to tell, to tell you what your experience is. So I, I think this is all a kind of a, I find that's quite a problematic 
dynamic that happens more and more between people and it silences people. Yeah. But it involves the use of words as if they're literal and, and, and phrases as if they are standard and not to be questioned. I really read that philosophy in your books and specifically in uh, the parables that are used to often lead students, Ling under Shilon or Bashir under Harelev, they are provided with these parables to come to their own conclusions about their own reality. Mm. And it seems that it's a parallel role to what a psychologist may have with their patients in these student-teacher dynamics. Additionally, the demons in The Walking Boy have suffered an incredible amount of trauma, and exorcism means being heard and coming mm. to terms with that trauma. So mm. I just want to put it out there. Does your vocation as a psychologist influence these interactions that directly? I'm sure, but it, I say to people, some people say, oh, you, you say that because you're a psychologist. No, I said, I, I say back, I reply, I, I I became a psychologist because I'm, I think that way. So and I was, I've always been interested in these kinds of ideas. And that's what led me into psychology and always been interested uh, when I pursued further studies in psychology to work with people. As a therapist, I was never interested in being an academic or teaching. And so the, I see that the role of a therapist is more like one who serves others, who doesn't get in the way of people who need some help. So I'm supposed to support them to find things that they could do that are different, that would free them to gain access internally and perhaps slightly externally. Although I intervene at the internal level on this end and the rest, they, you know, they have to enact or get help externally in the world. Uh, but the internal and external, of course, in dynamic interaction. So I try to help people at the internal end look at themselves if they're willing you know, if they're willing to engage with themselves, I can only go as far as they're willing to go, but I can point things out. I can ask questions and perhaps that use of language also opens the mind and therefore the person up because to talk to someone that way is not just, you know, a talking head idea, but it is to respect that the person is a mind mind, body, and spirit together. So I'm also engaging with the unseen, the spirit of the person, how willing they are to change and what they're willing to change. I could not, there's no sense that for me that I tell people what to do. I don't do that. And I'm just asking questions. I give them some ideas, what I think, but I put it that way because no one can change that person unless they want to change. You know, there's a very cheesy joke. How many therapists does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, as long as the light bulb wants to change. <laughs> very, very cheesy. Uh, but <laughs> it's not my joke, fortunately, but it is quite an amusing joke. And sometimes I say it at the beginning of my work with a client, you know, as to sort of highlight the idea of it's up to you. Then if, if you want to, I can, I can assist you. But if you don't like what I'm saying, then don't take it. In, in, I read exactly that in Shilon uh, uh, raising Ling and uh, Harlep raising Bashir is just leading them in a way and allowing them to form their own conclusions about the world around them. And that, I, I think that's part of what provides them with being whole characters and maybe even whole people. Just it, it seems as though the converse of your psychology doesn't really influence the way that you write but your attunement to humans, and especially the way that you create them in narratives, 
with Shilong raising Ling in particular, that converse relationship, being a writer helps more support your interest in psychology, why that might be. Oh, I was trying to say that because of the kind of person I was as a young person, that led me to my interest in psychology. And then I was anyway interested in stories. So, so it's more like this person here was interested in psychology is also interested in stories. And so it's really who, who I am and what I'm interested in led me to do psychology also led me into stories. So the, the narratives uh, also get influenced by uh, my background in psychology. And my work with, with clients is very influenced by my interest in narrative. So they're both dynamic forces, but they come from who I am. It's not because I'm a psychologist that I think of such things because I'm who I am that I became a psychologist. It's who I am that made me become a writer. And they, the two areas are really different, but same manifestations of the kind of, kind of mind that I am. So... Well, I, 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 I misunderstood. I think I was creating a false dichotomy between Lydia Qua the writer and Lydia Qua the psychologist when it's really all just harmonized together. Yeah, they are, they are the same, but in showing different forms. You know, you, one shape shifts for a different context. But while I'm working with clients, I'm also interested in their narratives. While I'm, in, and while I'm writing, I'm interested in the psychology of my characters. And I once quipped years ago, uh, shortly after I wrote The Walking Boy, oh, yes, uh, all these characters, there's so many characters, they come to live with me, but they never do any housework. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and then, you know, um, I was sort of really annoyed with people seeking some resonance between, say, for example, my first novel, This Place Called Absence, and me, you know, and there were some people who thought that my father actually suicided, like the protagonist in the in the novel, this place called Absence. And I said, no, no, that's, that's, that's the character, that's not me. So after that, after all these um, preoccupations with finding autobiography in my work, shortly after The Walking Boy came out in 2005, I said, oh, you know, The Walking Boy is the most autobiographical fiction I've written. <laughs> you know, I like to be really subversive. People were like. <laughs> so. Yeah. Because you're so attuned to knowing people's motivations and what they might be going through, do your, guess. Characters, do your characters ever surprise you? As oh, yes, writing? all the time. That's why, you know, that's part of my hook into writing is I'm surprised all the time. It's like, I don't know. I mean, I was really surprised how open Bao Shu is. Really surprised. You know, when he had that interview with Ni Huang and she was really puzzled by his way of being like they're speaking two different languages really about what's important power right from where she's at is very different than his power she was very almost intrigued but like he was talking a different language but he came to the point where he says he comes to the point where he says i'm following what draws me so when i write i i just follow i follow as if these characters are taking me places and i'm surprised and i do get surprised all the time I don't write by outline. I don't say initially, okay, this is so, I mean, I have ideas, but I, I'm always surprised. And that's part of the wonder of writing is, oh my goodness, didn't think that would happen, you know? So it's delightful. I mean, of course it's painful being a person working on a novel, it's painful. But then other than that, it's a lot of joy as well. Right? And one of the things is being delighted and surprised by characters. Yes, they do surprise me all the time. 
that, yeah, that, that's really wonderful to hear because yeah, yeah. There, there were moments that just surprised me so much and that interaction where uh, Bashir is pleading the case of the village yeah, she responds to his sense of power in such a surprising way. It was really fascinating that that own sense of self-destiny was enough to be able to assuage her, the female emperor, of taking his body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she didn't understand what was happening in the conversation, really. I mean, because his own presence is so different and so pure. I believe that his purity his pure spirit, because it startled her, she couldn't touch him. She, she, she had to back off. It was, a sen- it was a power that she never encountered, you know, so outside of her realm of experience, right? Because it's all about being exploited, going to the court and then rising to power, exploiting others, you know, and then suddenly there's this pure presence with her. It totally floors her. So, so that in itself, she, she just had to pull back from, touching it from invading it she couldn't touch it she just decided no i'm just gonna leave it well i don't if i was just to imagine what she would have i mean she would have been just she didn't know what hit her really and she's like okay just go then you can go is that a message that you want your readers to take away from the walking board what to have a self-awareness and a sense of purity as they're pursuing their own lives is that what imbues the individual with power I think that that's the inspiration in, in there in terms of Baoshu's uh, journey is a clarity by just following what draws him. And that's also an encouragement, I guess, to readers who want to hear it, that it is, it is a challenge in this world to follow one's own pull. What is that? There are so many pulls to do so many things. Nothing is really as pure. No one is as pure as Baoshu. Really, no one. And, but can we tune in to that pull, that motivation, that life force that draws us into one thing versus another? So that's a form of destiny, right? We create that destiny. It's not like some preordained thing tells us this is the way we still interact. As Chi Lan says to uh, Ling in Oracle Bone, we choose, we always choose. Is we always choose. So that's kind of a destiny we create by being ourselves. And of course, ourselves, uh, we are in dynamic interaction with circumstances, history, uh, different people, you know, uncontrollable circumstances, but we still choose what to do and respond to those things. So yeah, that's, that's a good, I think that's a message I would love for readers to take away from, from, that, from that novel. I think that's a beautiful way to end the interview portion of our talk today. So thank you very much for speaking with me today and just allowing me to really pick your brain over these incredible books. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for the interview. It's been great to have a conversation with anybody, and you in particular today, who's so interested and intrigued by the work. It, it's, these are books that are you know, very non-typical, non-Canadian, but that's the whole thing is to introduce a different set of realities. And if the reader is willing to engage and enter, then I think we find a lot of resonances because we are humans. We, you know, we have some things that we share in common, albeit we are different. Oh, I wanted to say one thing, if you don't mind, I forget, I forgot to say this, is that whole idea of magic realism, it, suddenly, it certainly has been used or invoked uh, in many ways for people and trying to talk about such works, but really the term originated in Latin America, and it's a particular kind of genre 
But I would say that what people are meaning by the word, you know, words only sounds meaningful and they give meanings to them. What they're trying to engage with is a way of storytelling or strange tales uh, that's inherent in the spirits of the books, which is very much seeded or germinated by Chinese ideas. So the transmission of the strange, uh, even Qi Lan, Qi in her name, Qi Lan, Qi means strange, strange orchid. She's a strange one, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think what, what I was trying to get at earlier was they're in sort of a fantastical realist. Yes, yes, that's right. Sure, that. that's what you meant and many, many people mean. And so you call, you know, speculative fiction or fantasy. In the new book, just to give you a little flavor, some of these characters recur uh, in flashbacks or there's an interweaving of times and spaces, but it's set in 2219, Luoyang, the eastern capital. Uh, not the Western capital, which yeah. is Chang'an. Uh, Luoyang was referred to in these two books as an incidental re uh, reference in the background. But then now in the next book, uh, which will come out in fall 2023 with Buck Rider books, it is set in 2219, mostly Luoyang. And it's a mythical Luoyang. And it makes us speculative fiction with science fiction. So there are many characters that are non-human, not just Qilan. So Chilan in, in the book is referred to in that reincarnation, but she is in her a different name, a different human embodiment in A Dream One's Waking. So A Dream One's Waking is the title of the next book, which is already alluded to in, you know, Oracle Bone. The, the, the inscription on the Oracle Bone, right? A sky needs like A Dream One's Waking. So this line is taken forward far into the future. And you will meet a lot of non-human characters. In fact, the book is dedicated to or for our non-human kin. So it's, it's an, a sense of the non-human and of chimeric creatures. There's an allusion to classic of mountains and seas. And this is, a, this is a classic text in which there's all these exploration of mythical creatures that are chimeric. They're, they have different kinds of bodies of different creatures put together. And it's meant to be seen as a mythical kind of piece of literature, but maybe it was a code for something. We don't know. It's, it's very mystical, very mysterious. So I've taken some of those ideas and created creatures who are chimeric, who are non-human in the next book. So it has the speculative fiction aspect, the fantasy aspect. There's a little bit of fighting as well in the next novel, uh, but mostly in 2219 in a very fictional Loyang with different zones and different areas. So you know, I like to make things up. I like something a little challenging. There you go. That's just to whet your appetite a little oh, bit. Yeah, no, no, it, it was all right there. But that that's really fascinating because it seems as though you've been moving towards through at least these two books. If, if you take Oracle Bone as the first, there was a, almost a three-act structure in this. And then you've done away with the three-act structure. And now it sounds like you're going to be moving towards doing away with the unity of time if you were to think about it in old dramatic terms. So, yeah. That... Well, let's, let's just say I was intending to write, definitely, as I said, so I was intending to write a trilogy. But let's just say circumstances happen. And so I had to adjust myself. And so my view of the whole three books is one of the two books as a duology and the third. But you can think of it as a trilogy as well. Yeah? It doesn't matter. What's the only sounds? I mean, but they, they are connected. <laughs> Well, I, I, I'm excited for whatever form it actually takes. So, yeah. I, I, Thank you. 
So thank you so much for your engagement with the works. Yeah, thank you again. We hope you enjoyed this interview of Lydia Kwa by Ryan Stern. I'm Mark Herman Lynch, and you're listening to Tea House Talks. We recognize the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stokel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Mahmoud Ababne, Ryan Stern, Mark Herman Lynch, Xu Yin Yu, Shazia Hafiz, Micah Jacobson, Rebecca Gelin, Ben Gann, and Amy LeBlanc. Our music is Monarch of the Streets by Loyalty Freak Music. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tea House Talks. For more on the work of Tea House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check out our website at www.teahouse.ca. That is T-I-A-House.ca. If you'd like to be in touch, send us an email at teahouseyyc at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening.